Good morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13. As has already been said, we are looking at a very sensitive and difficult topic these next two weeks, the topic of sexual assault and sexual abuse. And for that reason, we wanted to give parents a heads up. We, <clears throat> I think we're doing it in a tasteful enough way that I don't think it would be um, a, um, done in such a way as would be harmful to kids, but we still want them, we want you as parents to be able to protect um, them and make the best decisions you can in terms of their their well-being. You know, um, this, this whole Me Too movement, uh, we're calling the, the series from Me Too to Set Free. And we're borrowing the Me Too portion from this very public testimony that's been on newspapers and television and everywhere else for the last year or so. Uh, this area of sexual assault and sexual abuse. It has taken, been taking place in more universities and government offices and, and training rooms and Hollywood casting couches and network news offices than we can imagine. And, and we look at it because it is so common um, uh, studies that I've read, I've read a lot of them over the last 30 years, and uh, I, I believe that the statistics are very safe in saying that over 30 percent, 30 to 40 percent of women have been assaulted or abused in some way in this particular way, and, and for men, uh, maybe upwards of 10 percent. It's that common. It's all around us. Uh, we can't ignore it. And, and, and we really shouldn't ignore it, because when it's ignored, as it often is, both in the church and out, when this sexual assault is ignored, it tends to metastasize. You know, it's like a lump. You find a lump and you say, well, maybe if I ignore the lump, it'll go away. But what we know is many times if you detect the lump, you're actually better off to address it earlier rather than later, because it has a tendency to spread. And that's true, though sexual abuse and assault are very dark and present way too many places, the gospel really does dispel the darkness. Through the gospel, through knowing Christ and walking with him, it's possible for us to directly address what needs to be addressed and also to see the healing that is available through Jesus Christ. You know, there was Bill Cosby accused in court by 60 women of having drugged them and taken advantage of them over a 40-year period. Bill O'Reilly, Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, and Tom Brokaw all were kicked out of major news and opinion offices over sexual assault. In some cases, sued for 10 to 20 million dollars. More than 150 former U.S. women's gymnastic Olympic team members came forward to accuse in court their team doctor, Larry Nasser, who for 25 years had abused hundreds and hundreds of young girls between the ages of 6 and 15. Half a dozen congressmen and one U.S. senator has, have already lost their seats in Congress in the last year alone due to their 
uh, assaultive ways towards women, as have many actors and music celebrities, music industry leaders and celebrities. A similar movement, lest we think that this is only one of those things that happens out there, um, a similar movement to the idea of Me Too is the idea of Church Too. Hashtag Church Too. This July, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, former Archbishop of Washington, D.C., but then moved up to the level of Cardinal which, Cardinal, which is the group of people who select the Pope. It's the second highest office in the, in the Catholic Church. Theodore McCarrick, Cardinal, was removed from his post by the Catholic Church in July because of evidence of decades of sexual abuse of young people. And this past week it came out that in Pennsylvania alone, 300 priests have abused thousands of kids over the last two decades. And the church has covered it up, not, result, not reporting it to authorities. But once again, it's still not just out there. Uh, in, uh, at Willow Creek Community Church, a well-known evangelical church in Chicago, the founding pastor, Bill Hybels, whom I've met and has had a, a testimony of meaningful ministry, resigned in April because of reports of his sexual um, misconduct and assaultive ways that had been over years. But just a week or so ago, all of the elders from that church resigned, along with the two co-pastors who had taken over his role, because they realized that, that what they did was they circled the wagons to protect Bill more than to really believe and listen to the people who had been hurt. And so what they realized was that we have mishandled this. Two evangelical judges that I know of, and no doubt there are more, but Paul Pressler out of Houston and Roy Moore, whom we've heard of, um, both having had years of comments of people indicating ways of assault more strongly with, with Pressler than with Moore, along with several major church pastors and conference speakers, people who have lost their posts, who are being sued or facing criminal charges following years of sexual harassment and assault. Each of these is a story of real people, real people where a man has taken advantage of a young woman, or in the case of young men. Uh, there, are stories of, there are stories of women who abuse, but it's so much less common that we're going to talk in this series about the person harming the person. We'll speak of that as a man. I realize it could be the other way, but it's so much less common. I want you to take a look with me at this passage as we look at some of the most common elements. We're going to see kind of two or three things here in this passage right off the beginning as I begin to read. First is that although you could say there's no common sexual abuse because everyone is unique, there are some common patterns. And this biblical passage, which shows us sexual assault as clearly as it can, does actually have a number of very common elements of sexual abuse and assault. Um, it also, though, unfortunately shows us what not to do. And hopefully between this week and next week, this week more by what not to do, hopefully more next week what to do, we see some ways that, uh, that we need to learn how God would have us respond to this. I'll be in, reading in the New American Standard, verse thir chapter 13 and verse 1. 
Now, it was after this. And you just stop right there. After what? Well, it's after what just happened. Well, what just happened? We haven't been reading in 2 Samuel, and we maybe haven't been meditating on it lately. Maybe we haven't memorized the whole Bible. Well, the after this that the writer's talking about is that in chapter 11, David saw Bathsheba bathing and had her taken and brought to him so that he could lie with her. Another man's wife, that he could take her. Sexual assault right there in the, in the palace. And then in the next chapter, Nathan the prophet confronts him. And we know the rest of that story. But realize that's the context out of which this grows, which is just a reminder to us that things like sexual abuse often don't happen in vacuum. There's often a, a context. There's often a community that supports abusive ways. It's not an absolute, but it's not uncommon. And it's not uncommon for, for the example of a dad who has let down his guard in his own life for him to also let down his guard in the way that he manages his kids. Now, again, that's not an absolute, but it is something that we as dads need to take particularly note of, the responsibility we have for our sons and for our daughters in this area. So this is what we read. Now, it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister. His name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. I just want to say right off the bat, the use of the word love here in the Bible is referring to Amnon's perspective. He felt like he loved her because he lusted for her. He was so captured with her beauty that he just wanted her. And so in his pea brain mind, he's referring to that as love. It's, it's not love. And we know it's not love by virtue of what he did a few verses later, but we also know it's not love by the words that the Bible contained itself, because what did it say? He made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. Meaning, he wanted to assault her. He wanted to have his way with her, but it seemed hard because after all, she's his half-sister, and somehow people would find out. So he wanted to find a way to be able to do it. But there's more evidence of community's involvement than just David's example. Look at the next few verses. Not only does David set an example and influence his son, perhaps, look at verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? So whatever this was was so obvious. His the, the extent of his lust for Tamar was so great that people could notice it on him, that he was miserable. And, and I can just kind of see him moping and mourning because I'm not getting what I want and I'm angry about it. Amnon said, I'm in love with Tamar, sister of my brother Absalom. So Jonadab knows the rest. He knows you can't do anything. He knows that's not appropriate. But this very shrewd man, this bad example of a good friend, Jonadab, says, well, then lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. This is his cousin, maybe his older cousin, since 
uh, Shimea, his dad, was older than David. He may well be older. So you might be, I don't know, but you might be talking about a 22-year-old who's got some really good ideas, he thinks, on how to have conquest over a woman, and he's passing it on to a 17 or 18-year-old. I don't know. But it's a reminder to me when I see this going on of the fact that even secular sources have done research and found out that if a man has friends who will call him away from certain types of abusive patterns, many times it actually affects the men for good, even in non-Christian circles. In other words, men actually do have an influence towards evil or away from evil in the lives of other men. The guy who shows you his phone and shows you some images and starts laughing at it, he's not a good friend. The guy who tells you about some conquest in his truck the weekend before, he's not a good friend. And so any young man among us, which by the way is an age that's getting older and older all the time uh, for me. Uh, it, used to be that a young man was somebody who was up to 18 or 21. Now they're pretty much 40. <laughs> Don't know how that happened. But, but how often we have friends who can influence us for good or for bad. Friends who become an example to us to stay away. Uh-uh, buddy. I'll never forget the guy whose who's, um, brother was told his brother he was leaving his wife. And that guy went to his brother's house 200 miles away and showed up so early in the morning his son, that he hadn't left the house yet. And he rang the doorbell and his brother came to the door and said, what are you doing here? And he decked him. <laughs> a counseling method I haven't used yet, but, <laughs> but he hauled off and hit his brother and his brother was flat laid out right on the threshold and looked at him from the ground and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to knock stupid out of you. Actually, interesting, the guy didn't end up leaving his wife. Um, but, but the point is that men do have influence over men, for good or for bad. We need to not miss that. Amnon's counsel was for uh, his friend's, uh, Jonadab's counsel to Amnon was for him to satisfy himself. The third thing I noticed, look at verses 6 and following. Jonadab gives him the plan in verse 5, lie down on your bed, pretend to be ill. When your father comes to you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may eat it from her hand. See it and eat it from her hand. So that's the plan that his cousin gives him. Verse 6, Amnon follows the example. He follows the advice. So Amnon lay down, verse 6 says, and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come, make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat it from her hand. David sent to the house for Tamar, said, go now to your brother Amnon's house, prepare food for him. So Tamar, Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. Remember, this is this guy who is so sick and so hungry that he just has to eat, but now he refuses to eat. It's one more example of the manipulation that's often present in sexual assault and, and, and uh, sexual abuse. It, it, obviously, there are situations where sexual assault and abuse includes force. We're going to see an example of force. But the vast majority of the time, sexual abuse and assault don't come about by force. And if they do, it's very much towards the end. Up front, there is typically manipulation. 
there is a man manipulating his way to draw the woman into a position of vulnerability. And we see that. We see that just in, with so many examples. My sister, he says to her, um, he, um, let my sister Tamar come. She takes it. She offers him the food. He's pretending to be ill. And then he finally says, have everyone go out from me. And so everyone goes out from him. Verse 10, then Amnon says to Tamar, bring the food into my bedroom that I might eat it from your hand. It is this manipulative way that he, he as so often happens with sexual abuse, people move from one spot to another spot to another spot. He didn't just start out the minute she walked in and abuse her. He groomed her. He moved through these various stages of preparation, of getting her to where she was finally in a position that he could take advantage of her. And that happens so, so often. Bring the food into the bedroom, he says, that I may eat it from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made. She brought them to the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. Isn't that sweet? calls her my sister. Come lie with me. It's an invitation. Before he's going to use power, he's going to use these cajoling ways. And girls and young women, I just want to say, if any of us use ways that are cajoling and manipulative and we're whining and we're showing you how much you mean to us, and the way you can show us how much you mean to us is to share a little bit of what you have, run. Run. You know and I know that we're living in a world where it is so commonplace for people to give themselves away. And the sad thing is there's been a lie perpetrated on young women. And the, and the lie really is to their greater harm. Oh, it's harming men for sure, but I've seen younger, young women harmed far more because many times they believe that if I, maybe if I just show him a little bit of love, then I'll really have the attention I'm looking for. We're going to see that often that's not at all the case. That's not what happens. I will say about Tamar, as often as the case with sexual assault, she doesn't do anything wrong. So often when a, a girl is harmed, she ends up feeling like, I must have brought this on myself. I must have done something wrong. I must have somehow made this happen. And I don't question whether there are times where there can be complicity, where there's a sexually assaultive move where a woman has been unwise or a, a girl has been unwise. But the vast majority of the ones I've run across over the last 20 plus years, 30 years, the ones I've typically run across, that's not the case. Very, very often, they're not doing anything wrong. Um, and that's one thing for parents and grandparents to realize, that when abuse stories come forward, we need to be a little less quick about telling them all the things they did wrong. We need to be a little less quick about trying to figure out what they could have done to make it not happen. That's just, we're deceiving ourselves as to thinking that's helpful. It's already happened. They need our presence. They need our support. They need our wisdom, which sometimes requires as we'll see, a, a collective group of wisdom. Well, Tamar didn't do anything wrong in this situation. And it reminds me of a, a, a movie, a, a thing called The Escalation Workshop, 
that a number of FBC high school students and parents watched a year or so ago. It's put on by the, by the One Love Foundation. One Love Foundation is, was founded in the memory of Yardley Love. Yardley was a student at UVA um, whom a few years ago, while she was a student, was killed by her boyfriend. And the story shows, even though it's a secular film, the story shows that the way it eventually led to murder was that he had been manipulative and using her and controlling her, and he was super sweet and then super manipulative and eventually super forceful, and when he didn't get what he wanted, he killed her. And the value of seeing things like that is that moms can help coach their daughters about wisdom and not by overpowering our daughters. It's not about an argument. It's about, I want to give you the wisdom I can. Ultimately, she's going to have to make a decision for herself. Because in this world, we can't chain our daughters to the bedpost and protect bad things, make sure that bad things don't happen. It has to be an infusion of wisdom. And the same thing for us dads. We have the ability to be a source of strength and protection for our daughters and granddaughters, to let them know how precious they are. To, to not say that men are inherently bad. All of us have sin, men and women alike. It's just that, unfortunately, the, one of the greatest sins that we as men can perpetrate is the using of women for our own gain in such a way as harms them, as we'll see in this passage. I want us to see something else in the passage after the assault. I want us to see what happens after the assault, because I'll, I'll read what happens. He when she brings him to him, he says, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Thankfully, Tamar has a voice. Tamar is able to speak. Thankfully, Tamar is able to, to call him out and say, This is a wrong thing. This is not done in all of Israel. She's recognizing the holy nature of the nation of Israel. This is not done. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools of Israel. We'll both be harmed forever by this. And then she says something that's in our context is really weird. In their context, it was a little different because she was a half-sister and because of the power of the king of what could happen. She says, now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. In other words, if you love me, then marry me. I'm willing to do it. And I, I don't have any comment about why she would be willing or why she wouldn't. That's way beyond the pale of what we're looking at. In our context, that would be yuck, disgusting, no, you know, it's just not even a, a consideration. But for them, I, I interacted with a rabbi about this. I asked him specifically questions about the justice in this case. And he said, um, from our perspective as Jews, there were two legal ramifications, uh, recourses that could have happened in this situation she could have gone ahead and married him. That could be allowed if the king spoke forward. I'll, I'll mention the other one in just a second, the other option. However, he would not listen to her, it says in verse 14. Since he was stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And then what happens? And then what happens? Notice what happens. Something happens to Amnon and something happens to Tamar. With Amnon, something happened that is not that uncommon. After getting what he wanted, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go away. What? I thought you just said you loved her. No, he lusted her. 
And in his lust, having gained this conquest, there's this pushing away, there's this contempt for her, maybe unless he wanted her again. But in that culture, that wasn't his intent at all. She responds to him, no, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you've done to me. In other words, she's saying, in our world, as bad as, as the assault of rape is on me, it's even worse to send me away. In other words, what she's saying, and she's basing this on the law, it's one of the things that the rabbi reminded me of. He was just saying, remember, one of the options when a man lies with a woman is that he can end up giving her father a dowry and he can marry her. And that's exactly what she's taking right now as an option, a legal option. Yet he would not listen to her, verse 17 says, because of this contempt he has for her. Look what he says. He, th he then called his young man who attended him and said, now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. My sister, 15 minutes earlier, is now this woman. Do you notice that? It's a depersonalization. What happens in the context of sexual assault and abuse, women, uh, many of you know, and many of you young girls don't know, thankfully. But one of the things that I would want you to know is that it is common when we as men move in a selfish direction towards you, that it isn't a completion of us like we pretend. It's we have what we want. So now, be done with you. And this is something that in the church, we, we have to warn our young men and teach our young men how to honor women. We'll talk more about that next week. We need to touch our, teach our young women how to walk honorably, how to live honorably, and how to guard themselves. It's important. No more, no more time than the time that we're in right now. So after the assault, he hates her with a terrible hatred. But I do want to say this. I don't think that's the worst part. I think the worst part is what happens next. Tamar, in verse 19, does something that any good Jewess would do. Tamar puts ashes on her head, verse 19 says, and tore her long sleeve garment, which was on her, which had been introduced to us earlier. And she had put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. In other words, she is showing the standard signs of mourning and grief that would have been common in that society. The ashes on the head are the reminder that I came from the dust and I'm returning to the dust. In other words, it's a picture of death. The rending of a garment is reflective of the rending of the heart, the heart being uh, torn in two. But it has a second meaning in this case, because what it said is the long sleeve garment was the picture of being one of the virgin daughters of the king. So what she did was she recognized my identity is forever altered, and she ripped off the sleeves off of her garment. She's mourning. She's crying out because she knows this thing is not what's meant to be. One of the sad things is when people tell people, just be quiet about it. Look at the next verse. Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? He can tell. He can tell. Because the, da the, the ashes on her head and because the torn garments, he knows that she's signifying to people, I'm no longer a virgin. He knows she's crying because it didn't happen after a wedding ceremony. It wasn't celebration. It was mourning. And he could guess who would be behind it because he knew his brother, his half-brother. 
But he says to her, but now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. We'll see he doesn't mean that. He just means I want to take care of it. But one of the unfortunate things is with sexual assault, so often there's a message of just keep silent. What really needs to happen is we need to bring things to the light because as we're going to see in this story, and as happens in so many other cases, when it's not brought to the light and it's not addressed, it typically gets worse. And that's certainly what we have here. The thing about this that really grabs me is I have, I've been reading this for a number of weeks, of course, and studying it in anticipation of speaking on it. And I have become increasingly grieved for Tamar because of these words that are found in verse 20. So Tamar remained meaning remained at her brother's house, remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. She was desolate. It means she had no hope. It, it meant that she was kind of in an abandoned state, like her life ended. Oh, she continued to live, but with no purpose. She was desolate. She was bereft. She was bereft of the hope of a young woman in that culture, which would have been to marry, to have children and grandchildren, and, and to contribute to the kingdom in those ways. But now she's desolate to this man's act, but also really because of the cultural response to her, which I think is a message for us, as, as we'll see. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture, um, a picture that I really very much appreciate. Somebody else shared with me this week. It says, on the darkest days, when I feel inadequate, unloved, and unworthy, I remember whose daughter I am, and I straighten my crown. As I saw that picture this week, I couldn't, I couldn't keep from thinking about Tamar. I couldn't keep from thinking about, I wish that there had been some women who could have drawn alongside her and helped her know you know whose daughter you are? Do you know whose daughter you are? Restore that crown. Not just your David's daughter, but you're the daughter of the real king. Because what happens when a girl goes through something like this is she literally changes her identity. Remember the removal of the sleeves? That's a removal of an identity. And she has nothing to replace it with. Most girls, especially in that culture, when they remove the identity of virgin, that meant it's because now I'm a wife. And I may end up becoming a mom. And I might become a grandmom. So there's an identity. For her, there's no identity for her now. What am I? I'm damaged goods. For the Christian, it is imperative that we as a church find ways of drawing alongside injured women and young men where this has been the case, but more often it's women, to be able to help them straighten their crown. Because there is a God who has not only forgiven the sins that we commit, but there is a God who restores the broken heart. He is a healing God. And our women and our girls need to know that. And in a world that is, that is trashing the view of women more and more, this has got to come from us men as well as from the women of a congregation and of a family of God. 
It's got to. Because for too often we've been silent. I want you to hear something. I want you to hear a young woman, Rachel Den Hollander, who is the woman who brought forward the charges against Larry Nasser. She's the one who brought, ultimately brought to court the U.S. Olympic team women. 150 of them gave verbal direct testimony in person about the assaults of Larry Nasser against them. And even the secular world watching has just been crushed by this particular testimony. Rachel is a committed evangelical believer. She was homeschooled, um, that went along with her gymnastics very well. She became a lawyer. She went to law school when she was 19 or 20, 21, 22. She got married about the same time that she was finishing up law school, started having kids. She's got four of them now, and she's about 32 or 33 years old. Uh, she's a strong young woman. And though she never desired the abuse that was perpetrated on her over two years, Though she did whatever she could to be able to undo that and get that away, she actually brought it up to people in the early 2000s, and it was totally ignored. Other people brought charges up against him 20 years before he was finally brought to justice. But Rachel Den Hollander does some things here that, to me, really show a taste of what needs to happen when abuse does take place, and it doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen in our biblical story here, and it often doesn't happen in the world or the church. Let's listen to what, what Rachel says. The cost, emotional and physical, to see this through has been greater than many will ever know. And Larry, I don't need to tell you what the cost of your abuse has been to me because you got to read my journals, every word of them, because those had to go into evidence to make this happen. But I want you to understand why I made this choice knowing full well what it was going to cost to get here and with very little hope of ever succeeding. I did it because it was right. No matter the cost, it was right. And the farthest I can run from what you have become is to daily choose what is right instead of what I want. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices over and over again to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. 
The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. In an address she made at Harvard uh, just a couple of months ago that's on YouTube uh, with the Veritas Forum, she addresses why she can call somebody to justice and judgment of the sentence that he received at the same time extending, extending personal forgiveness. It's such a, I think there's such a healthy way that we need to be able to look as a church at not only God's grace, but at God's justice. The last thing I see in the passage is what happens at the very end, or maybe what I should say is what doesn't happen. Now it happened after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Balhazor, which is near Ephraim, and, Babs and Absalom invited all the king's son, sons. This is a little uh, window into what's going to happen in the future. It's a strange transition sentence from what just got through happening to what happens. But when you read the rest of it, if we were to read for the next several chapters, this is what we would notice. David does nothing to protect Tamar, and David does nothing to justly deal with Amnon. And as a result, it's left to his angry uh, son Absalom to take matters into his own hands, which leads to murder. The murder eventually leads to insurrection and rebellion within the kingdom, which leads to thousands more being killed, which then leads to um, David's wives and concubines being sexually assaulted in the palace, which then eventually leads to Absalom being killed, which eventually leads to the kingdom being torn in two. I don't think that is merely descriptive of what happened. I think it is semi-prescriptive of the fact that when we have sin, when we have sin in our midst that we do not address, it metastasizes. It gets worse. It brings us to the very last thing that I want to close with. As a result of the passage, there are five things that stand out to me. First, God is a God who deals with reality. He isn't afraid to see bad things, and neither should we be. He doesn't need to pretend that they don't happen. Second, our friends and our family affect the choices we make. The community that you let yourself be part of will influence you towards good, or the, or the community you let yourself be part of will influence you towards bad. It's just that easy. And in September, when we look at technology and its influence within the home, we have to realize technology is part of our community. 
Not only because some of us, that's the only community we have is what's on that electronic thing in our hand, but because it's speaking to us, it's giving stories to us, it's shaping our perspectives, the television, movies, the phone, everything. We need to recognize that's part of my community. Am I surrounding myself with community that is stimulating me to love and good deeds, or am I stimulating myself in a direction that moves away from the glory of God? Third, a woman like Tamar can do everything the way she should and still, still be assaulted. If you have been hurt, we have a ministry here at the church called SAS, Sexual Abuse Survivors, Sexual Assault Survivors. And it, it works in tandem with a national ministry that we have a connection with that the elders have been supporting for years um, called Healing Hearts. And in that, there are women who meet with women who through Bible study and encouragement and prayer and weeping together with those who weep and strengthening what remains, they end up building up the heart of people and helping them straighten their crown. We do that because these are very real needs in our very real midst. And the world... If we're doing what God enables us and calls us to do, the world will beat a path to our door looking for something better. The world is right now beating a path to Rachel Den Hollander because she's speaking with more clarity and more courage and more specificity, and yet still with mercy. Some of the questions that the Harvard students raised to her, one of them I, I just loved. They said, I'm an agnostic, but from what I've heard of your address, I am wondering what place is there for me to find both justice and mercy, justice and forgiveness? What place is there to, for me to find that without your God? And Rachel was able to say, I'm so sorry, I know of none. And then she articulated the gospel. Folks, bad things horrible things that Satan intends to kill, that Satan intends to bring harm to our midst. These are things God wants to use for good. The last word has not been spoken because of the bad thing that happens. A woman doesn't have to remain desolate. We are a community of life givers because the gospel is a life-giving message. And that life is most powerful in the midst of darkest darkness. And that maybe is the fourth and fifth point. Fourth, when someone is sinned against, people surrounding the injured need to face it with them and lovingly speak words of compassion and restoration to help them to restore their identity in the Lord, to recognize they're not defined by what happened to them, but by who gave his life for them and has called them his own. Which brings us to the place that the church needs not only to be a place of mercy, a place of the ministry of the kindness and forgiveness of God that Rachel spoke about, but also a place of justice. It needs to be a place where we can develop enough character and enough courage that together that we're able to address these things when they come up and do what we can to help bring healing and to help bring proper adjudication. As we look next week, we'll try to look at some of what God gives us in the ways of ways we can positively respond to these things that are thrust upon us that none of us would wish. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who breathes life into death, a God who brings light into darkness, a God who is never surprised by what goes on. 
Thank you for being a God who restores. Thank you for the, the uh, women especially who are going to be forward here to pray with those who want to come forward for prayer. I'm so grateful these women who have been involved in restorative work in the lives of people who have been through abuse and assault. Father, I just pray that you would help us to be a holy people, a people who don't bury our head in the sand and don't pretend. God, you're a gracious God, and I just thank you for the fact that we have a message of forgiveness, but also a message of your righteousness and your justice. Lord, help us to be the kind of place that when the world deals with us, when social services deals with us, when the rest of the world deals with us, that they find in us people of integrity who don't circle the wagons to protect our own, but that we proclaim both justice and loving kindness, because that's the kind of God you are. Give us wisdom, Lord, I pray. In this matter, we pray and healing for those who are in need. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.